Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Kathy Hughes, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer with Northwell Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. We'll get to our interview in a moment, but first this brief word from our sponsor. At CrowdStrike, we stop breaches, and since threat actors often show up with legitimate credentials, stopping them can be tough, especially if your Active Directory hygiene has been less than perfect. But you can't secure Active Directory now and clean up later. Find out more about identity protection and AD hardening at CrowdStrike.com healthcare. Kathy, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Anthony. Oh, great. Looking forward to having a nice chat. Um, I love to start these out. I've, you know, uh, it's an interesting role. You're not just in healthcare. You're not just in IT. You're in healthcare IT security. So I like to find out how people wound up where they are. So take me back and tell me how you wound up in this little niche of the world. Okay. Well, I think like most of my peers and other people I know that, that you've interviewed, we, we tend to start out on the infrastructure side of the house and into the, and the operations and the engineering even the architecture side, uh, which is where I started many years ago. Um, and I've always had um, an interest in security. Um, you know, it was part of what we did as on the infrastructure team. And typically people associate things like patching and malware protection with security, but it became much bigger as time progressed. And a lot of organizations like Northwell felt the need to break it out separately and to really focus time, effort, and people on really building out a program to ensure the appropriate defenses were in place. So I had, when I joined Northwell, initially I was on the outsourcing side of the house and in charge of all the traditional infrastructure teams. And then an opportunity became available at North Shore LIJ, which is now Northwell, to really lead up and head the disaster recovery program. So I really um, started focusing on that about eight, eight or nine years ago built out that program um, to where it is today and we're it's still going through a number of um, changes as, as things evolve and such. But uh, during that time, I was asked to temporarily uh, take on the security uh, function because the director in charge of the group had decided to leave. So I took over the team on interim basis and you know quickly learned just how you know how much needed to be done in that area. And when they did eventually hire the director to take over, I specifically requested that I hold on to the risk management group because I really found that interesting and uh, knew that a lot needed to be done specifically in that area. So I held on to that um, and really matured that program as well, really built out our HIPAA you know, compliance and security program along with my peers in corporate compliance, built out the PCI security program and other programs as well. Um, and that was a real, uh, you know, significant accomplishment. And and I, uh, you know, from there, this the role of the CISO had become uh, more more well known, and and a lot of organizations were starting to add CISOs within their organization. So I ultimately applied for the position, and as they say, the rest is history. Um, but really, what sparked my real interest in the area was the fact that I was actually the victim of identity theft, and um, you know, having lived through that firsthand, and and just realizing how vulnerable you feel when when you're violated in such a way where your identity has been compromised, 
it really made me want to focus that much more in this particular area. So I feel very um, fortunate that I've been able to, to not only take you know, my experience in the infrastructure role that I had for many years and being able to build upon that, but also taking my personal experience that I had having been the victim of identity theft and learning firsthand what people had to go through um, you know, I was able to leverage that and build out the program that we have in place today. So is that in, identity theft is, is as much of a nightmare as people say it is? It really is. And the identity theft that I had experienced, um, you know, years ago before it was really a popular term, mm -hmm. right. um, it was really learning from the ground up what you know what it felt like and what what the obstacles were and all the different things you had to go through with reporting to local police and law enforcement and then you know because i had been erroneously charged for things i didn't buy mm -hmm. you know dealing with the credit card companies and the, the firm that claimed i'd made these expenses and trying to get that removed from my credit rating uh, was something that was really a very painful and very long process to go through. Um, and then just learning from them, you know, things that you had to put in place, such as making sure you have credit freezes in place so that somebody can't compromise um, or, or can't impersonate you to make purchases like that or to use your identity for other fraudulent type purposes like you know, I'm just using this as an example, but healthcare services or filing tax returns or things like that, which is what identities are typically used for. They're not only used for credit card fraud, but for other purposes as well. Um, so it's really important. And that's one message I always try to, to get out there is that, you know, um, to, for people to encourage people to put credit freezes using the big companies, you know, Equifax, TransUnion. And then when you need, if you do need a line of credit, then to go through the process to have that that freeze lifted temporarily while you're you know you need to get whatever transaction you need to get done completed. Yeah, sometimes you see these breaches and you see a couple million records were released and you wonder if people feel like, well, I'm one of a few million. You yeah. know, nobody's going to look at my records. Nothing's going to happen. But you're more sensitive to that because yes. it happened to you. So I'm assuming you would be much more proactive in trying to make sure if there ever was a breach that the records that were exposed, that those people did everything possible to make sure yes. nothing resulted from that. Absolutely. feel very strongly about that. And I'm very concerned about that. And that's why, and I, I've shared this story with not only other people, but my team as well. And because it's really important to to have them understand the meaning behind what they're doing, you know, and that it, it is important and um, how disruptive uh, identity theft or any kind of misuse of someone's personal identity, just how impacting it can be. I mean, luckily I was able to uh, catch the identity theft pretty early on. And so that, you know, it wasn't, it, I've heard horror stories about things that have happened to people where they've lost their life savings and things like that. Um, so, because people don't know what they need to check and just monitor and make sure that, you know, there aren't any fraudulent charges or misuse of their user ID and passwords and that they, um, you know, I try to encourage people to practice those things, but it, it's important, I think, to, to kind of provide that insight to people mm -hmm. and let them know what it's really like to have, to have been a victim. So I think that's been very um, empowering to me and mm -hmm. very important to the people that I've shared the story with. Yeah. 
you hate to say, I guess it's an upside of what happened to you, right? At least you're yeah. doing, doing something constructive with it. I want to go back to disaster recovery. You mentioned that was part of your background before yeah. you even, uh, you know, when you were still doing infrastructure and things like that. And I think a lot about how closely tied security has to be to disaster recovery because we've seen organizations have to go to paper and then yeah. have to go back. And as I think through what that's like, that has got to be so incredibly complex in terms of the interactions between IT security, IT, and the operational leaders, the clinical folks. Um, you are dealing with the, the outage. You are dealing with the breach and possibly a ransomware situation, whatever the case may be. Um, you may have to take systems offline. You have to understand the operational impacts of what you're saying may have to be done. So I've also been thinking about how much CISOs have to know about the clinical operations so that they can be well informed when they're talking about risk, when they're talking about different things and this may, system may have to come down. Well, do you understand what that system does and the impact of that system coming down? And have you coordinated with the physicians? Have you game planned that out? Anyway, talk to me a little bit about the, what proper disaster recovery and business continuity planning requires in terms of IT working with actual clinical operational leaders? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's so incredibly important. And I think traditional disaster recovery in my roots really came from planning for the very unlikely scenario that there would be a flood or fire at a data center and you'd mm -hmm. have to recover systems offline. And typically organizations did that through making sure they had offsite backups or they could build up servers at another at a colo or, or a location that maybe they had on contract. And today we all know that it's much more than that because the likelihood of a flood or fire, although still real, especially in certain areas, is less likely than being attacked by a cyber incident, mm -hmm. as you've alluded to. And the need to recover systems quickly is very, very important. Um, so at Northwall, what we've actually done is we, we actually, in a separate group from me, um, but I'm very closely aligned and even have a dotted line report, uh, reporting um, structure to the senior vice president in charge of our business continuity and crisis management group. And we have a separate division just focused on that to, to deal with all the things you just mentioned. It's really understanding what are your most essential services that you have and what would you do if they were impacted? And most, I'll call them business continuity or downtime procedures are really focused on short time incidents. You know, being down a couple hours because a piece of hardware broke or being down because there's some type of an upgrade that's being done. And I've had to work very closely with the senior vice president of this group to really make them understand that you could be down for days, weeks, or even months. And we really need to be prepared to deal with that. And so this has been really, and you know, something that is fairly, you know, it's it's new to us as far as the longer term planning we have you know, very good, solid short-term plans in place, but we're starting to really build out that program a little bit more. And, you know, we've engaged some th a third-party uh, consulting firm to kind of assist and guide us with this. And it, it's important to not only understand these essential services, as I mentioned, but everything, all these systems and data 
are connected to everything else. So you really have to understand we call all your upstream systems and data feeds into your primary essential services, as well as what those downstream data you know, integrations need to be and how that impacts your, your downstream applications, because everything in healthcare is connected. Um, you know, having the full view of a patient's uh, clinical information is critical, and that involves all these systems and the information from them being available. So I think this is a, an area of focus for Northwell, as well as for other organizations. And in parallel to that, we are, you know, transforming the way we do traditional disaster recovery. So we're looking at, um, you know, technology platforms like continuous data protection, where we're always replicating data to an on, you know, an, an offsite uh, cloud uh, area or to um, an off network type backup solution so that should we be hit by a cyber incident, we have the ability to recover in the most timely and efficient manner possible. Um, so those are just some of the, the initiatives that we're, you know, currently working on and that, you know, tremendous progress we've made in those area, but of course there's more to do. Yeah, and it's like an insurance type situation. I mean, you could you could spend all kinds of money so that you can recover within a, mill, a millisecond, but that would cost, you know, ridiculous amount of money. So what's appropriate, right? What's the expectation for recovery? What do, what do we, when do we want to recover? And then you might do your research and say, okay, here's what it's going to cost. What do you think? And they say, well, it's too much. Okay. Let's say it takes a little long to recover. Can we bring the price down? So where do you start? Do you start with the expectations of the business for when it expects to be up? Or do you start with, here is what it will cost to get us this level of service. I mean, there's just different ways to go about it, right? Yeah, so I, it's really a mix of the two because I think that you know nowadays we all expect, and this is no different in healthcare, everybody expects everything to be available all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but in the, re the reality is that, that that comes with a price tag. Right. So uh, what we've done is we've established what we call disaster recovery tiers, where we've gone through a process to really look at all the applications in our environment to really understand which are those that are really essential and most critical, mission critical to the organization, and to make sure that we've really invested appropriately in those so that should we need to rely on that, uh, on bringing those systems, if we need to bring those systems up within a, a short period of time, because the expectation is, you know, and then you know high 90% availability that we have the ability to do do so so we've gone through this disaster recovery classification process and you know the typical spread um, that organizations have is that you know most of your tier 1 applications that should be the the far and few between 5% right. of the environment most um, applications that you have you know, about 80% might fall into a, a tier two, and then a tier three might be things that are, you know, important, but not so critical, maybe a 10%, and then your remaining 5% would be, hey, if the system goes away and never comes back, or we don't get it up for weeks or months, you know, we'll be okay. We have other ways to, um, to support the operation and continue to work. So, it's really going through and because everybody's going to tell you, if you ask someone, how important is your system? They're going to say, mine is the most important system. That's what I was just thinking. I was going to ask you, how do those tiers get defined? Because yes. if you're just waiting for that list to be delivered to you, everything yes. would be in tier one. Yeah. So we came up with very clear definitions and tier one is a mission critical system. These are the systems that must be available because if they're not, 
someone might die or we might lose a lot of money. You know, I'm just, you know, kind of paraphrasing, but without them, where our organization may not be viable mm -hmm. if we're down for a significant amount of time. So it's really, to your point, is it, it's engaging not only the IT folks, but it's engaging the clinical people because I certainly don't know what systems they rely on most right. heavily. And things change over time too, because right. you know a system that might've been seen deemed mission critical at one point isn't so important now because a new system they brought in has comparable functionality and it's built in. Um, so it's, it's a constant, there's a constant review cycle that needs to take place to make sure that your applications are tiered appropriately um, and that you really have identified with you know, through a, really a, a committee type approach to mm. what those most essential services are so that you can ensure that they, uh, that you continue, that you can make them as available as, as possible. I've read things here and there about, uh, you know, IT department's going to go away. You know, somebody wrote a thought piece about that and it's just got to be part of the organization. Um, and it makes me think that in order to be an, a successful healthcare IT executive today, um, you cannot be in any kind of isolation, you know, you, because you need to be so involved with the operations and understand so much about what's going on and coordinate and communicate that old model of IT being in a little bubble in a separate building. It just doesn't work. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's all about, I would add to that is collaboration um, is key. And, um, you know, one of the, my main role, I would say, is, is making sure, although I report to the CIO, I have dotted line reports to corporate compliance and internal audit and corporate security, which handles physical security and our corporate risk management team and our office of legal affairs. I work collaboratively with them on everything that we do. Mm -hmm. um, we I'm involved in separate uh, several committees, some of a couple of which I lead, where we talk. We have an IT risk governance committee, and it involves representatives from all those different areas that I just mentioned, and also a research organization too. And so it's something that we continually talk about. It's my job to um, you know make them aware of what's going on in the world and what the the current threats are and what we're doing to protect ourselves. But ultimately, what we do and how we protect our systems isn't an IT issue, it's an enterprise mm -hmm. issue. And it's a risk management process that we need to go through to make sure that we're setting our priorities appropriately and that they align with the overall strategies and vision of, of our organization to make sure we're investing appropriately. And it's investing in not only process and technology, but people. And I think that's um, a really important variable because one of the one of the concepts that I'm always trying to uh, get across to everybody is that everybody in our organization is a member of the security team. It's just not me and my few departments that I have. Everybody has a role and responsibility. And one of the most effective ways that we've um, combated phishing, mm -hmm. as an example, phishing attacks is that we have and they given empowered our users with a button to report suspicious emails or a, a separate email address if they think something's suspicious. And because of their vigilance and because of the awareness that we've created, we have thwarted many attacks from being successful because they got through our technology filters, but at the end of the day, it was up to the person behind the keyboard making a conscious decision or, or just looking at it, email and saying, hey, this doesn't look quite right, I'm gonna report it. 
And many times it's just spam emails, you know, marketing emails that come out. But on occasion, there have been some that have gotten through our filters. And because the, the people took the time to report the emails being suspicious, we were able to put the appropriate controls in place to block access to a malicious site or, or to remove unopened emails from other people's uh, mailboxes that might have also received it. Right. So still the, the biggest threat uh, is coming in through email. Mm -hmm. And it's social engineering, yeah. Uh, and it's they can be more sophisticated. They can be pretty sophisticated. They're doing research. They're they're targeting particular individuals. They know who they are. They know where they work. They know the department. They've studied them on social media, and they're able to reference things that they've put on social media, or they allude to things going on at the organization, new construction or whatnot. Sometimes they're they're you know, uh, people dealing with accounts and paying vendors pretending to be some vendor, things like. So these are the way that things are getting in. You're doing everything you can from a technology point of view, sort mm -hmm. of as a strainer to get rid of a lot of it. And what comes through, you hope employee education covers the rest, yes. correct? Yes, yes. And we use, um, we conduct, uh, as many organizations do, phishing exercises mm -hmm. um, that to really test people's understanding of, you know, of how to detect and report suspicious emails. And we do enterprise camp, we call them campaigns or exercises, but we also do targeted exercises, which is really critical. So for example, every few months we target our finance department who has wire transfer capabilities because yeah. to your exact point, uh, they are very highly targeted individuals. Their names are commonly known, you know, either through LinkedIn or through some posting that they might have on social media. Um, a threat actor might be able to determine that they have certain um, capabilities. So they will specifically target those users. So we will conduct phishing exercises. First, we always provide some training and reminders and things like that, what to look out for, but then we'll actually test them. And uh, we've gotten to a point where we work very closely with our HR department, our human resources department, and legal, and um, also with our uh, compliance department to um, create a disciplinary matrix uh, for people who in these exercises, uh, repeatedly we call fail or, or become or fall victim to them to reinforce how to recognize and report suspicious emails. And uh, it's a dis, you know, a progressively, a, a progressive matrix where you know we'll provide training, on-the-spot training. If they click on a link, they get a page that's flashed up. And if we see repeated behavior, we'll have them attend, uh, make them watch a, a video specifically on on phishing, and if it happens a third time, we might require them to do a real live online, used to be classroom type training, but we don't do that now, um, and do something you know to really reinforce the concepts and really work with the individuals, because that's really the important thing. We wanna work with these individuals to really make them understand how important it is and what happens. If it just takes one person to click on a link in order for systems to become un, uh, unavailable. And disciplinary action can lead up to and including termination. You know, that's how seriously that we, we take this. Yeah, I, uh, I read that you had said that and I was impressed because I ask a lot of CISOs about this kind of thing and not many people like to talk about sort of getting tough. Everybody yeah, wants exactly. to talk about in healthcare, we gotta get along, tell them to do better. Yeah. But at some point I say, if somebody's <laughs> repeatedly doing this, First of all, you might want to study them in and of themselves and try right. to figure out what is this profile that this, per this person keeps doing that. Um, 
can you work this into the hiring process? Can you, it, it, should this be part of an interview, something someone's asked to get a sense of whether or not they have any concept of this and are sensitive? Do they get it or they, you know, they blow it off and you go, we're not sure we want this person in our organization. Well, what we do is during the hiring process itself, we really don't have the opportunity to do that others, other than some kind of, you know, criminal background check on mm -hmm. an individual. Um, but what we do, though, is we have an, an on, an, as part of our onboarding process, um, I have my manager of our security awareness and training program um, give a talk. Um, she actually, on a, we have a live every Monday morning, there's a, a, a new hire training, and she is on the agenda to speak to this group to explain the importance of phishing, how to, how to recognize and report phishing emails. And she also tells them, and by the way, hint, hint, within the next few weeks, mm -hmm. we're gonna test your knowledge of this. And that's really important because to your point, um, our new employees are the most susceptible. And we found we, when we ran our enterprise campaigns and tried to figure out you know, what type of targeted exercises do we need to run, we found there was a very common theme between new hires. New hires just didn't seem to get it because they hadn't been barraged with our constant, you know, screensavers and email blasts and newsletters and digital signage and poster and social media posts and all those things that we use mobile, you know, using mobile device, um, uh, mobile communications. If it's out there, we have partnered also with our corporate communication groups and asked them what are the different ways that we can reach out to people because. There's different methods applied to different individuals. We have a whole host. Some people will only look at email, and other people's will never. Other people will never look at email. They only look at social media posts. So we really leverage all those different methods, mm -hmm. communication methods, to try to get through to our staff. So new hires that come on board, you know, haven't necessarily been exposed to that. So that's one of the ways that we really reinforce that concept. And if they fail the first time around, we will refish re them to make sure that they get it and work with them one-on-one -on -one as needed. Because it's much easier to deal with the smaller group and give them that personalized attention than just throwing you know, a phishing net out and trying to just get one message across to everyone. It's, it's more effective to target users that are most targeted um, you know, because of their role in the organization or those that are most vulnerable because of their, their stature, you know, specifically new hires. Yeah. Do you try and keep them fair, those phishing emails? Well, you, you, don't put, you don't put anything in there about you got a bonus because I heard people get no. upset with that. No, no. But <laughs> what we do, though, is we do have a, a recognition program because just like we have a disciplinary program, we also have a recognition program. I think it's just as important to acknowledge people who say it through in the course of a year, we do four, four to six enterprise campaigns. If there are people that always report uh, that the, the email yeah. uh, was suspicious, then we will recognize them with either a, a cyber champion, like a, a badge of some type, or even with some my, what we call my rewards points. We have like a, uh, a system where you can earn points by doing certain things and we will reward points. And I remember what was, I always wondered, you know, is this really an effective strategy? And I remember, a couple of years ago, when we were able to walk around office buildings. I was walking around. It was right after we had just notified people that, hey, great job. We're giving you these reward points. They're going to be available this day. And I was walking by and no one, no one knew who people didn't know who I was. 
And they were saying, they were so happy. The couple of people had just received this email. They were so happy and thrilled and patting themselves on the back about, wow, I got these reward points and isn't this great. And the word just got out, word of mouth just got out about it. Mm-hmm. And they were being my, our, our advocates for telling their coworkers, you know, really should report these things. You can get these points and you get this nice badge and you get this nice email. So it really has been a very mm-hmm. effective strategy to not only recognize good behavior, but also to call out those, you know, individuals through disciplinary actions that need to have behaviors reinforced. Right, right. Uh, let's anything come to mind. If I ask you, what is something you're looking at, either a technology, a service, uh, an issue going on uh, that you say, maybe not all my CISO colleagues are quite up on this, or, or maybe there's, I've done research, I got a way to move forward. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty around this. Anything come to mind that you would want to just tell your fellow CISOs that something to think about? Here's something to think well, about that I've been looking at. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, buzzwords out there. So, um, you know, and I think that there's was even a lot, you know, with this recent log4j vulnerability that that was uh, discovered back in December, you know, all kinds of marketing information uh, from different vendors about a we've got the, the silver bullet to solve your problems. And, and we all know that if there's really nothing out there, it's really making sure that that you have your, um, that you're able to kind of press that button when you need to, to get all hands on deck to address an issue when it's as, as you know, as large as this log4j vulnerability that was uh, discovered. And so I would just advise them to make sure that you have the ability to do that, to make sure that you can press that button to assemble people together, to explain to them what's going on and what you need from them. Uh, we have, you know, well over a thousand applications within the environment and this log4j vulnerability, there was no, you just didn't know when it mm-hmm. first was announced, whether or not your applications were even susceptible to this vulnerability. So we really needed to engage all our application teams and, and say, hey, we have, we have a call to action. We need you to reach out to your vendors and find out is this is the application susceptible? And let's take a risk-based approach to this. Let's focus on those systems that provide the most essential services to our company, uh, to organization, and make sure that they're aware of this, number one, and they're doing something about it, number two, if they're susceptible. And meaning that, are they working on a patch, and when do they expect to have it available? So we did that, and we are, you know, we still have work to do, but we've tackled those those systems that, um, you know, are most critical ones, and we did involve people from all our different application teams um, and ask them to kind of step up and, and work with us, collaborate with us to get this, this vulnerability mitigated. So that's one thing that I, I think is really sometimes overlooked. I think that to your point, sometimes security teams or traditional IT teams tend to work in this bubble and they can't. You need to get everybody involved and engaged when things like this are announced. You mentioned an all hands on deck button. Are you talking about something more specific or uh, concrete, or are you talking about relationship building to where they they know who you are? You've spoken to them before, you had a little chat, so now you're not just, oh my God, the VPC, so it's Kathy calling me. Is that what you mean? Yeah, so what we we have um, a service management team, and part of our search service management team is a situation management group. So if there's a hurricane coming, if there's a, some kind of major upgrade being done on a system, if there's some type of major 
outage because um, a system isn't working for whatever reason. Our situation management team, which we have already in place, uh, gets involved in, in um, providing communications um, out to the org, you know, getting information from people and then communicating out information. So we leverage that team, our situation management team. I, I reached out to the, the head of that department. I said, we have a situation and we need to get ourselves <laughs> yeah. organized around this. And we need to get representation from all the different application teams and the application teams, as well as our infrastructure teams, because infrastructure teams own applications. And as well as, you know, um, our key contacts in departments outside of IT that actually manage systems, like, for example, a clinical engineering team. We need to get all these folks on a call, explain to them what's going on, and we need to have some kind of, uh, you know, weekly cadence. To, to, to review status and to report out to senior leadership what's going on and what's being done. Um, so that, that's what we, we just leverage that, that, that team that's already in, you know, that we already have set up, really not meant to deal with this specifically, but it's the same concept that there's a you know, hurricane coming and we need to make plans, we get this group together. And, and so we just you leverage that same group for this purpose. So make sure you have a situation management team. Yeah. Yes. That's your that's your all hands on deck button that calls yes. them. Uh, I like it. Very good. All right, Kathy, that's about all we had time for today. Fantastic conversation. Lots of good stuff in there. And I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. It was a, my pleasure. Take care. Take care.